In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. David Perdue steps back into the political spotlight. I hate politics. I hated it before. I hate it now. I don't have a high opinion of most politicians. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. If you're just listening to us for the first time, Please follow Politically Georgia on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Coming up later, we're going to talk about the latest details in the Fulton County investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. But first, after a crushing defeat, David Perdue wants to heal Republican rifts. I was giving the Republicans a choice, and that's all it was in the state. I, I didn't say uh, anything that was untrue in that primary, um, but right now my only focus is, is uh, making sure Stacey Abrams is not the next governor of Georgia. Well, first off, a quick fact check. He did say plenty that was untrue in the primary, including that the election was rigged and that Brian Kemp helped prevent Donald Trump from winning. But before we get to all that, Patricia, you know, there's an old Yiddish word that comes to mind when I listen to this. It's one that my dad, who grew up playing stickball on the mean streets of Brooklyn, used to always say, and he used to always say when he was mad at me, usually, but it's called chutzpah, with the hard ch, chutzpah. You've heard that before. It, like, it took a lot of chutzpah for him to say what he just said. Uh, unmitigated gall. So that's one of the definitions for it. And, you know, the Republican reaction from David Perdue's interview with the Ben Burnett Show, it's a great podcast for all you guys to listen to. That was the the first reaction I heard from folks earlier on Tuesday morning saying, I cannot believe he said all that, talking about healing Republican rifts when he was the one who um, helped, the rifts were already there, but he helped inflame them by running against Brian Kemp and losing in a big way. He helped inflame them by saying over and over again, Brian Kemp sold you out. Like over, that was his theme of his primary. And it wasn't just the 2020 election, which he said was, quote, absolutely stolen. He also said that Brian Kemp sold you out when there was the recount going on, sold you out when the Rivian deal came through, sold you out kind of when crime was spiraling out of control. And by David Perdue's own retelling, Brian Kemp did nothing about it. He sold you out. So he he wasn't just a casual bystander as the Republican (laughs) rift was happening. He was literally, excuse me, he was figuratively pouring gas on the flame and lighting it. He was digging into it. He was running headlong into it. <laughs> like, you know, with like a four by four and just, wheel, you know, like going bogging, just like spraying mud all over the place. He was, he was the reason for it eventually. The way to solve that rift, which did exist because 
Donald Trump also created it, was to have a sort of a gray-haired party elder who was not up for election come in and say, I believe in Brian Kemp. It's going to be okay. It's not what you think. The election was not stolen, I assure you. You know, So there was a way to heal that rift without running a GOP primary against Brian Kemp, but that's not the path that David Perdue chose. It's also such a curious path for somebody who says he hates politics, has always hated politics, and hates politicians. I, I want to be like his career counselor and say, have you considered a different line of work, <laughs> David? I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, it strikes me David Perdue could have been that gray-haired, uh, you know, uh, party elder who did come in. But of course, he's the one who came in and, as you mentioned, figuratively poured gasoline on the fire, but literally cheered along as protesters, as Donald Trump supporters, I should say, rallied, lock him up about Governor Kemp. So no love lost between those two men. And as you're about to hear, even though we posed this question in the jolt last week, is the Georgia Republican civil war over? And it's provocative. And of course, there's still factions who opposed Brian Kemp. But you know, overall, he's at 95% in the latest poll. It was done by AARP of Georgia. And this was done by Joe Biden's pollster. So that's the same proportion of Republican votes as Stacey Abrams got with Democratic votes. So it shows that Republicans have, at least that poll and others we've seen, have showed that Republicans have largely fallen in line behind Brian Kemp. But yet still, this is what David Perdue said about the, uh, the I guess, the last lingering vestiges of anti-Kemp sentiment in the Re- Republican Party. I want to be a help and not a hindrance, but I'm trying to, to um, a lot of people who are really upset with the governor, uh, I'm in a position to try to help solve that over. And that's what I'm doing right now is trying to tell people to look, you got to look at the bigger picture, no matter what you think. And this is what Jack Kingston taught me. Let me say this about Jack. Jack had been in the United States Senate 22 years, I'm sorry, the U.S. House for 22 years. I ran against him in a primary, beat him in a runoff. The night of the election, he called me and said, look, I'm, I'm conceding, congratulations, but the bigger thing. I'm I'm in your camp. I want to. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. He did, um, and now he and I are great friends, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do for Governor Kemp. Look, Governor Kemp and I have differences. There's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, I understand who's going to be the better governor of Georgia, and it is not Stacey Abrams. Patricia, on one hand, he's saying the right things. You know, you expect for a vanquished Republican saying, "Hey, I want to," you know. Paul, everyone should be pulling in the same direction against a common foe, Stacey Abrams. On the other hand, we have all covered his sort of rise and fall as a politician. We know that he did more than any other Republican, except for maybe Donald Trump, to make Governor Kemp's election more difficult against Stacey Abrams. In the end, it might have helped Governor Kemp more than anyone could have anticipated. But still, I mean, through everything he could at Brian Kemp and now is saying, hey, I'm here to help. We have no evidence whatsoever of any sort of help. Other, you know, he mentioned in this in this interview with with the Ben Burnett show that he had a lunch with someone recently. That he's talked to his friends and and he's working behind the scenes. But there's been no public events with him and Brian Kemp, no digital or alliance on ads or anything like that. No messaging, and we have no indication that's going to happen. We have no indication that Brian Kemp even is desiring of much help from David Perdue right now. No, and I don't know that Brian Kemp 
needs much help from David Perdue right now. He is going into this general election against Stacey Abrams. I think it's very important for Brian Kemp to keep his eye on the ball in terms of which voters he needs to win over and keep. He's performing extremely well in the polls. There be there may be a time once early voting starts, once absentee ballots have gone out, and if there is some residual evidence that there is some pocket of GOP voters and Trump supporters who don't believe this election is going to be fair and square again, who don't like Brian Kemp and for some unexpected reason are not motivated enough by the fact that Stacey Abrams is running to cast a ballot for Brian Kemp, um, that might be the time when David Perdue swoops in and does some targeted messaging among that group with, you know... <laughs> I don't even know which podcast he could go on for that one. <laughs> but yeah, uh, maybe the Sea Island podcast, of, you know, broadcast well, live he, from Sea Island. He is welcome to come on the Politically Georgia podcast whenever he wants. Absolutely. Uh, our producer, Shane, can even set it up so it's live. Uh, there will be no technical difficulties whatsoever. Shane can promise, right, Shane? We never, ever have technical difficulties. We, we never have this. <laughs> Uh, and speaking of Shane's wizardry, we have a very special guest to talk about another Trump-related story, and that is the AJC former, you know, once, a, once a political insider, always a political insider. So basically current political insider, someone who thought that she would be coming to Atlanta to get away from more political coverage and now finds herself in the middle of what could be the trial of the century. Uh, Tamar Hallerman has been all over every development in the Fulton County Special Grand Jury's investigation into Trump's attempt to reverse the election of 2020. And we have a lot of big news to discuss. We thought we'd be discussing the development on, on was it Friday? Uh, just a couple of days ago with Burt Jones and David Schaefer, the lieutenant governor nominee and the Georgia GOP chair, both getting target letters informing them that they could face criminal charges. But now we've got even broader news out of that, which is all 16 phony GOP electors have received similar letters to Mar. This was a major development and a sign that this investigation is beginning to focus as well, not just on Trump and his inner circle, but also this sham GOP uh, electors scheme. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) I wish I knew how to uh, quit you guys. No, I'm kidding. I love being here. Um, No, so so the fake electors, this was something that was not initially a part of this investigation, or at least not something that we really knew about when the district attorney first launched this thing back in February 2021. She, of course, was really kind of centrally focused on the phone call with Brad Raffensperger and Donald Trump. She talked about things like the abrupt resignation of BJ Pack, the testimony of Rudy Giuliani, Trump's attorney in the state Senate. But the fake elector thing was new. She didn't actually confirm that she was looking into it until really this spring, until right as the special grand jury was getting ready to be seated. So it's interesting how we go from that all the way to where we are now, where we know that there are at least 16 targets of this investigation, actually 17 when you count Brandon Beach, a state senator who wasn't an elector, but was kind of interfacing between the electors and the Trump campaign. So obviously a huge development. Um, I have a feeling there are many more targets kind of outside of this scheme, but certainly a big newsworthy development this last week. Tamar, what are the laws that they could have broken? What What could they be at risk of right now? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different ones. The first, uh, the first one being forgery. Um, you can't be forging any sort of documents. 
And then it just kind of depends where prosecutors want to go with it. Should they decide they want to move forward with charges, which they have not at this point? No, no one has been indicted. They could look into conspiracy to commit election fraud, solicitation to commit election fraud. I've talked to legal experts who've mentioned that potentially could be a predicate act for something like RICO, the racketeering law, should they want to go in that direction. And we know the DA has mentioned that she is not afraid of RICO and looking at it in the context of Georgia's 2020 elections. So it depends not only does DA Willis want to move forward with charges, but how narrow or how broad does she want to go? Tomorrow, you've got one of the toughest beats at the AJC and really in the media uh, because this is all happening behind closed doors. And in this case, we were, we, I guess we benefited because the filings were made public. Last week, we had to rely on anonymous sources, but with some of the developments, but th- these at least were in public filings. But this is just one facet of a very broad investigation that you're following. Catch us up to date on what's happening with Lindsey Graham, David Ralston, and uh, who else? Oh, Burt Jones. <laughs> so there's, there's multiple different fronts. I know this last week has been absolutely wild and just trying to like keep track of all these different moving pieces. As you mentioned, Greg, it's all secretive. So we've been getting little tidbits here and there, what I've been able to pull out through open records requests to different state agencies, what folks have kind of proactively been willing to tell us. And of course, now through these court filings with folks trying to quash their subpoenas that they've gotten. Some recent developments that we've seen, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, a top ally of Donald Trump, you know, he was subpoenaed a couple weeks ago. He mentioned he wanted to fight it, citing legislative privilege. He was supposed to have a hearing on that initially in um, in Greenville, South Carolina on Wednesday. That got moved to Charleston, and then that has now gotten moved to Atlanta. So, so that's a new development there. So I guess you're not hitting the road. <laughs> not hitting the road, unfortunately. Um, Georgia Congressman Jody Heiss recently revealed in a filing that he was subpoenaed. He was not necessarily um, someone who was top of mind, uh, at least to me initially. He has mentioned he's going to be fighting this case in federal court. He's uh, you know, citing kind of similar arguments that uh, Lindsey Graham is. We saw House Speaker uh, David Ralston go in and testify last week, you know, and him and his team kept it very sort of hush-hush, but we know that he was subpoenaed and, and was there for a couple hours talking to the special grand jury. And one thing that, you know, had kind of slipped between the cracks for at least me, I don't know about you two, Greg and Patricia, was that Ralston was among the re- Republican officials in Georgia who got calls from Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani in the aftermath of the 2020 elections. I think, you know, it was out there in a local North Georgia blog, but I mean, compared to what happened with Brad Raffensperger, Governor Kemp, it kind of got lost in the shuffle. That's so true. And he said in that interview with Fetch Your News, he said that they had a very cordial conversation, you know, but David Ralston has a way of um, describing things in a way that can understate what really has <laughs> happened. Or sort of he's a bit of a, it's a little bit of a velvet glove over an iron fist. So he's like, oh, it's a very nice conversation when he asked, you know, blank, blank, blank. Um, but he certainly was not one of the people, Tamar, who has tried to evade the grand jury. Is that right? Yeah, as far as I know, he didn't seem to be. Although many Republican officials in the state, um, including Secretary of State Ravensburger, were, you know, they did ask to receive a subpoena before they um, they walked in to testify. So I'm not sure if that was the case with Speaker Alston, but yes, he, he did come in. He didn't try and fight it, um, as several other Republican legislators have done locally and, you know, even at the congressional level. And tomorrow we'll let you go because we can hear the booming thunder in the background of where wherever you are in town Atlanta. 
it's just hitting yeah, the suburbs, it's pretty intense but it's back not here. hitting, it's not hitting where Patricia is right now, which is uh, somewhere very, <laughs> very not Georgia. <laughs> in fact, it's gorgeous here. It's gorgeous in, in Virginia. Um, and before we take a break, I'm very closely looking at what the Fulton County Special Grand Jury does in, when it pertains to a GOP chair, David Schaefer, because some of the electors can say, hey, we're going along. You know, we were just going along with it. David Schaefer is this party chair who they could try to make the argument that he orchestrated it. Here's what he said way back in mid-December of 2020 when I interviewed him shortly after the fake elector scheme was made very public. We were asked by the president's lawyers to hold this meeting to preserve his rights under the pending litigation. So because the president's lawsuit contesting the Georgia election has not been decided or even heard, we held this meeting to preserve his uh, rights. Had we not held the meeting, then uh, his lawsuit would effectively uh, be mooted. So we held this uh, meeting today to assure that if he prevails in the lawsuit, that there'll be electoral votes uh, that have been cast that will be available to him. Patricia, he's sort of arguing, basically arguing what we've heard many times since then, that this was a contingency plan. This was a, a safety valve in case any of these lawsuits were successful. But at that point, it was very clear that none of these legal actions were even getting even hearings, <laughs> let alone winning in court. I mean, they were being tossed out left and right because they were full with unfounded statements and unsubstantiated accusations and conspiracy theories and falsehoods. Yeah, and we also know from the January 6 hearings that by then, um, multiple of Donald Trump's own staff inside the Department of Justice had told him that there was no evidence to support his claims while he was going through this. And so, Tamar, I have heard y'all talk on Breakdown about the question of whether having intent to break the law is necessary in some of these potential charges and in the filings from the fake electors, their attorney has said they did not have any way of knowing that this wasn't accurate. They believed they were doing the right thing and um, that this is really just essentially a political witch hunt, for lack of a better word. This is a completely political move by Fonnie Willis to turn them into targets when they had no way of knowing and didn't know that this was anything that could ever potentially be seen as anything other than a backup plan. Yeah. And I mean, many say that, you know, still maintain that what they did was legal, that they were trying to maintain, you know, options and that there is historic precedent for what they have done. Um, so I'll be curious to see how those arguments unfold in court, especially, you know, this challenge by these lawyers representing 11 of the uh, fake electors, including Chairman David Schaefer, you know, that we're expecting their challenge to be held in court. And hopefully media will be able to be there and kind of listen in on that. This is kind of one of our only windows into what's going on in this special grand jury. And hopefully we'll even get an idea from the DA's team about how they are kind of approaching all of this, because really beyond confirming that they're interested in this and kind of who they're talking to, we don't know a ton about what the DA's office is thinking. We don't know exactly the angle that they might be taking with these fake electors. So I'll be very interested to hear that. You know, something, Greg, that we heard from one of the folks, uh, was his name Robert Sinners, Greg, mm -hmm. who uh, was working for the Trump campaign in Georgia, helping coordinate uh, with some of these electors who now works for Brad Raffensperger in the Secretary of State's office. His name came up as part of the January 6th committee hearings. You know, he, he sent this email kind of directing all the electors to keep, you know, this meeting that they had in the state capitals a secret in December 2020. 
And he has talked to you, I believe, Greg, saying that he kind of regrets his actions now in retrospect. But at the time, you know, he was just following orders from the Trump campaign. And I wonder if we'll hear a similar line like that from folks like David Schaefer. And he sort of alludes to that in that quote that you just played from us, Greg. Yeah, that he was just following orders. And I can tell you that Robert Sinner's, uh, his guidance definitely seeped through because as someone who is covering the real electors, the real electoral vote at the state capitol up on the third floor in the Senate chambers, and was completely taken aback by the GOP elector scheme, the secrecy did work because, you know, I had interviewed some of the some of the GOP electors before asking them, hey, are you, is anything up? Is Because at that point, you couldn't rule anything out because there had been so much stop the steal attempts and all these different legal attempts and all the stuff going on, special session talk. And I was told, no, nothing's going on. <laughs> and then I showed up at the Capitol and saw a bunch of familiar Republican faces behind that big wooden door on the second floor. And when I tried to get in, someone at the door just said, hey, this is an educational meeting. And, and I said, you know what? Usually I would stay and kind of be a nuisance because that's what we as reporters do. But I had to go upstairs to cover the Democratic electoral, the real event. And so uh, I missed it when they opened the doors and allowed our colleague Richard Elliott from WSB TV to go in. But it really was done in secrecy. There's no doubt about that. And if you, our listeners, want things transparent and in the open, do yourself a favor and follow Tamar Hallerman for all breaking news, insight, analysis on this. This is this could be literally the trial of the century. Who knows? But right now, it's one of the biggest stories in the nation, and no one is covering it as closely as Tamar Hallerman, not just in the AJC and on her social media feed, but also, of course, our sister podcast. Can we call this our big sister podcast <laughs> breakdown? <laughs> her and Bill Rankin are doing a tremendous job. Literally, you know, as these hearings are going on, as these proceedings are going on, drafting new episodes every week. And uh, where, what are we on, number three? No, we just wrote episode or writing number six. No, I'm way out. <laughs> and if you want to know a little bit about how the sausage is made, you know, Bill, Shane, and I were recording episode six this afternoon when the news dropped about these 11 electors who who were challenging their subpoenas. So thankfully, Greg, you were able to kind of keep the, the ship afloat for a bit while I finished up recording for Breakdown. And so this constant kind of juggling act between our podcast, between, you know, you know, our website stories for, for the paper and then podcasts like yours too, trying to keep everyone informed with in as many mediums as possible. Well, we are good at that. We might as well be, um, what I was going to say, I was going to make a joke about being a medium, but that was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but it You're was not so a medium. Funny. You're well done. <laughs> well done. Oh, my, my dad jokes are well done. <laughs> okay, I'll just segue from there. We are, uh, we are committed at AJC to bring you the news in all sorts of different formats. And Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for joining us. Get back to, to the 17th story of the day. You know, the day is still, it's still only five something. Um, so you still have plenty of time. Get back to work, Tamar. Don't jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tamar. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back. I'm your host, Greg Belustein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. And we're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which we are confident helps set the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you, yes, you can get it in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is less than a dollar. It's just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Patricia, uh, we are keeping track of what's really going on. At least you are after a huge, huge momentous event for you. You picked up your kids and you, you missed them. Unlike me. (laughs) (laughs) I I did. I missed them so much. I was wondering what this huge momentous event was. I thought there was another subpoena round of subpoenas that came through. Yes. The momentous event is yes. We picked um, our nine-year-old twins up at separate camps because it's a boy, girl, brother, sister camps. Um, It was so wonderful. They gave each other a big hug because they even missed each other. And then we were all in the car for a road trip. And, you know, we were back to normal. It didn't take long to get back to normal. But I love, oh, yes, it's been absolutely fantastic having them back. And we snuck away to the Virginia countryside and the Maryland shore for a little family getaway. But I'm also working. Um, so I'll be going into DC. And I'm, for example, recording my podcast and filed my column today after we did some chores at my friend's barn with her two horses. So it's been, oh, cool. you know, yeah, it's been great. That is the beauty of multitasking and remote working in the era of the, uh, I guess we're not post-pandemic, but at least after the onset of the pandemic where it is more normal to remote work. And in jobs like we have sometimes, of course, we need to be at big rallies and big events and debates. But other times, you know, we have phones, (laughs) we have computers. And, you know, I was in Charleston um, a couple of weeks ago working remotely as well. We and our family are getting really excited about our oldest daughter, Nicole's her big play. She's the lead in Beauty and the Beast. She's Belle. It's going to be Friday. My boss got to meet Kevin Riley, got to meet my daughter. Well, she he's met her before, but got to see her again at when I dragged her along to an AJC event a couple of days ago. And he said, Bluestein, I will fire you if you don't go to the event. Well, of course, I was going to go to the play anyway. But <laughs> of course um, you're now she's go. walking around saying, like, Dad, you got to go or she's going to fire So... <laughs> She is so lovely. And every time you talk about her on this podcast, you're like, I don't know. <laughs> well, if She's you hear so adorable. noise that is not thunder, you know, it's actually them fighting right now in our playroom. So she's wonderful. And so is, so is the younger daughter, but they are, they are now two weeks back from sleepaway camp and they are, you know, right back to normal. Back in the swing of um, things. Yep. Scrapping. And I can hear them screaming at each other. I can hear them screaming too. <laughs> okay. So if that, that means our listeners can hear him screaming. So rest assured, I am paying very close attention to their latest squabbling. And, you know, having two kids gets you used to covering Georgia politics because there's a lots of intra-party squabbling and scrapping Ain't that and fighting the truth. My God. You well. know, and I actually caught, do you remember those two campaigns I called the twins because one of them was always whining? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, now we have, well, really, we have probably eight that we keep in touch with on an almost regular, uh, daily basis. I mean, four that we really keep in touch with yeah. on a daily basis. But it's hard to say we don't. There's really eight, nine, ten that we hear from, you know, pretty much on a daily basis. So each of them has its own distinct behind-the-scenes persona. Some are a lot more sensitive and needy than others, and some are uh, bullish and you know, so I guess each of them could take on the persona of one of our kids or yes. m- multiple kids. <laughs> Some are having adolescent growing pains. <laughs> yes. Oh, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay. Oh, um, because that segues in. Let's talk about Herschel Walker. Oh, no. um, he's taking a new approach, it yes. looks like. I don't want to get over our skis here. But after a series of controversies, I mean, look, he, he's had an issue rock his campaign just about every other day. But lately, he's been going back behind the scenes, back to private events, back to closed-door meetings that barred the press, which really doesn't make any sense at this stage in the game anyway. He's in the general election campaign, and he's going to keep, you know, his campaign is confident they're going to keep that core of 45 or 46% of their voters no matter what. So apparently, that message has gotten through to his campaign strategist because just this week alone, he's got three open events. Our colleague Shannon McCaffrey went down to one in Osceola, Georgia the home of the great Tyler Harper, the state senator, Republican state senator, also the Republican nominee for agriculture commissioner. And down there, she reports that he was much sharper, you know, in terms of much sharper edged against Raphael Warnock and much shorter than his normal rambling stump speech. So maybe this is a new approach. Maybe it won't be. (laughs) It's very early. But, you know, he had the National Republican Senatorial Committee was down here last week. That's been widely reported. He's got a new infusion of campaign stuff. So maybe, Patricia, we're starting to see the start of a a new, more open strategy or, may, or maybe not. Well, you know, we'll have, you know, time will tell, as always, with the Herschel Walker campaign. But it is a pronounced difference to have a 10-minute focused speech instead of a 30-minute rambling sort of stream of consciousness, um, word salad being served down a buffet with all kinds of other goodies, fruits and vegetables, throw in a piece of bread and how about some dessert on top of it? It was just, it. none of it made sense. This, I think, makes sense. You have a campaign, you have a tight message. Your message is Joe Biden is doing a terrible job and the senator who is a Democrat is helping him do that with his votes. And so that's a message in an environment that is very, very tough for national Democrats. And Republicans know that if they can tie Raphael Warnock, who is as lovely to camera as a candidate has ever been, but if they can tie him to Joe Biden and his policies, this is an election they very much believe they can win. And so that's what that Herschel Walker stump speech was about. It was about saying Joe Biden is not doing a good job and Raphael Warnock is a part of that. And in Ocilla, and I have been to Osceola, Georgia. I've actually been farming with Tyler mm-hmm. Harper on you his were on the farm. Tractor. Yeah, I was on that tractor. We were, um, it was the peanut harvest, which was super cool. But that is not a large town. And they had a very large crowd there in the middle of the day for Herschel Walker. And so, you know, I think between the crowd, the message and having Shannon there from the AJC, that is different. Is it a different strategy? That has to be a durable, ongoing situation, even when the times get tough. We'll have to see if he makes a big slip up and they retract this uh, brand new strategy. That is not a strategy. It's just an experiment. So we'll have to see where this goes. He also said something about Raphael Warnock that I think played very well in that crowd. I I don't know how it plays up here in Atlanta, but he said about Raphael Warnock. He criticized one of Warnock's 
premier policies. And it was one of the first things Raphael Warnock did as a member of the Senate Agriculture Committee was to push a program to get new loan relief for Black farmers. And Black farmers have historically and unquestionably been on the wrong end of loans and loan agreements with the USDA. There was a lot of accusations and proof that there was a great deal of racial discrimination in those loan programs. And so Warnock um, had a big push at the beginning of his term to say this has historically been unfair and it's time for the USDA to reverse that. That's a program that was approved, but it's been held up in the courts because white farmers said that that was not fair. And Herschel Walker during his speech said, really criticized Warnock for that. And he said, all Warnock wants to talk about is the color of your skin. And so for a black candidate to be saying that about another black candidate and a mostly white audience was something I, I was not expecting. It played well in that audience, but I think we'll have to see if that's something he pushes consistently to a broader audience. You're right. And, and I was down with Senator Warnock last year when he was at a middle Georgia farm making that, you know, making it very clear that that was one of his top priorities is helping African-American farmers who have seen their land share in Georgia and their clout in Georgia um, really seriously diminished over the years, you know, helping restore some of that equity. And, you know, Herschel Walker, yes, this, that won't play necessarily Metro Atlanta, but in the agriculture community and really in the rural areas where he's trying to rack up big margins, Republican-leaning counties, red counties, where, you know, he needs to win 80, 90% of the vote in order to have a chance at avoiding a runoff and or beating the incumbent senator. You know, he'll have to find ways to energize those voters. And hey, that might be one of them. Speaking of a trip to South Georgia, we also heard a sharper message from Stacey Abrams when she went down to Albany in other Southwest Georgia areas over the weekend. Patricia, you know, you plucked out of the jolt. You noted a very different tone in a, in a sense. I, I mean, she, she's, she, look, she's an underdog. She's making no bones about the fact that she's running from behind all the polls, except for maybe a handful, show that she is five, six, seven points back, maybe closure to two or three points back and some others. But either way, even her campaign says, hey, we're the underdogs. We might have a lot of resources, but we're running from behind. We, we're starting to see more of that messaging from her on the campaign trail, not just with the policies, but with her rhetoric. Yeah, she was down uh, meeting with the Albany Herald when she was down doing a Southwest Georgia swing. And to your point about her running as an underdog, the signs of running as an underdog are not only um, sort of shaking up your policy proposals. I think we've seen a lot of economic policy proposals, very familiar to those of Governor Brian Kemp that I wasn't entirely expecting. And to me, that shows a really aggressive effort to go off after those voters in the middle who the Abrams campaign knows they need to win over in order to do better than she did the last time when she lost by 55,000 votes. Another sign of an underdog campaign is there is a change in their rhetoric or a level of their rhetoric that is extremely pointed, um, sort of pushing a contrast very hard. And so when she was down with uh, the Albany Herald, I'll just read a little bit of what she said. She was talking about Brian Kemp. She compared him to a used car salesman. And she said, he'll show you a nice shiny vehicle with a polished grill and new tires, but he's hoping no one will look under the hood. It's the Hmm. engine that matters. And Brian Kemp's not telling the people of Georgia the whole story. He's talking about just the engine. She also said that he has been lying about her record with his deep on the police ads. Um, She said, look, that ad is a lie. That's something I'll never do. I will tell you what my policies are and what his policies are. 
but I'm not going to lie to you about someone else's position and try to confuse voters. And that, to me, was also sort of a level of pointed rhetoric and contrast with Brian Kemp that I hadn't quite heard before. I certainly hadn't seen it in print. So I think that's uh, the sign of a campaign that is very aggressively going after every vote. Yeah. And and again, one that that knows that the electoral tides are moving against it and has to be aggressive, right? I mean, the landscape, we always knew this going into a, a midterm is already against the party that's in power. And nationally, of course, that is the Democrats who control Congress and the White House. And um, when, when you have candidates who can essentially run against the president whose approval ratings are either in the high 30s or low 40s, depending on the poll, that means your candidates, your Democratic candidates have to significantly outrun, outperform the sitting president in the state, right? And so you've got a situation where Stacey Abrams is not, we haven't seen any significant ways that she's tried to distance herself from Joe Biden. She didn't appear with him at an event way back in January, but I think that was overblown as her trying to distance herself from him. That simply wasn't the case because she can't. I mean, she tried to be his running mate. So I think there's (laughs) there's there's an understanding within the campaign that like, you know, even if they wanted to, <laughs> there's no way they could distance themselves from Joe Biden. They might oppose some of his policies, you know, in a way that Raphael Warnock certainly is. Raphael Warnock's opposing his his plans to close military bases and and saying he should do more to relieve Georgians of high gas prices and saying that he should do more to go after price gougers. We haven't certainly seen the same thing from Stacey Abrams because she's in a state race, for one. And two, she is more closely tied to um, President Biden in, in ways because she was on that medium list, maybe even short list to be his vice president. Yeah. And she also worked very hard to get Joe Biden elected and Democrats around the country, in some cases, give Stacey Abrams more credit for Joe Biden winning than Joe Biden winning. You know, they she had so much to do with modernizing the way Democrats in Georgia and now I think the Deep South and now Democrats at large, how they message, how they organize, how they turn out their voters, mobilize their voters, um, not apologizing for being a progressive, but really digging into those contrasts. And so um, there is no way for Stacey Abrams to not be a Joe Biden Democrat. That's just not going to fly. But she is really trying to give voters a picture of what it means to be a Stacey Abrams Democrat. What does that mean? It means to have these um, economic issues that are very familiar to anybody who likes what uh, Brian Kemp is doing in terms of sort of the, the most popular things that he's done. The tax cuts, the teacher pay raises, the law enforcement pay raises. She does talk quite a bit about progressive issues, though, progressive social issues. And so I think that's the portrait uh, that she's trying to give Georgia voters, the contrast between her and Brian Kemp, but also a way to also let them know on the economic piece, it's going to be in good hands. Not to worry, I'm going to give you all the things that Brian Kemp is doing that you like, but none of the things that you don't like. So vote for me. (laughs) You know, that's the that's the portrait. And as we've talked about so many times in the show and in our coverage and newsletters and, and columns and and everything else, this is an election that we fought on many different fronts, right? You know, uh, to a segment of Georgia's population, we're looking at maybe polls show 10 to 15, maybe even it might even get up as high as 20. The abortion, you know, that landmark decision that overturned Roe v. Wade will be their, their most important factor. To others, it could be guns. To others, it will be economic issues, probably to a majority economic issues. That's what the polls indicate so far. But what we're seeing from Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock is an indication that they're not resting their campaign on outrage over those Supreme Court decisions. They have been talking about the economy long before those Supreme Court rulings were handed down. 
And we've heard Stacey Abrams talk about suspending the state gas tax for a year. Even before that, we heard Raphael Warnock going to a gas station in Sandy Springs and saying there should be federal gas tax relief. So they know the election could well be won or lost on economic issues, and it's not like they're sitting still. But at the same time, Patricia, those economic issues are working against Democrats because we have a national rate of inflation that's about 9%, even higher, about 11% in metro Atlanta. Gas prices are starting to subside a little bit. Who knows? You know, it could go up, could go down. Either way, they're higher than we saw, you know, years ago. And there's just, you know, overall economic concerns we're hearing from Democrats and Republicans about, you know, paying the rent, getting household products, questions about those that might not be resolved before November. And, you know, in that column that I wrote about inflation, I'd reached out to people who had worked in politics for a long time, also some political historical experts and said, you know, what's a good, what is a good example of the type of election this is going to be? Would you compare it to 1978? Because that was another time when there was just horrible, horribly high inflation, people really struggling with very high gas prices, rapidly increasing gas prices, then a lot of unease and unrest overseas. And I said, how about 1978? And, you know, those experts came back and they said, how about the Civil War. You know, I mean, this is a historically bad environment for Democrats right now. And so anyway, it, it, listen, that is just a very tough riddle to solve for Democrats in the state of Georgia. Not only are they really having to reckon with the reality of the situation with their Democratic president, they're also still trying to be an ascendant party. Stacey Abrams did lose the last time around. Raphael Warnock did get across the line at a time when Donald Trump was making it his business to practically lose these elections for Republicans here in the state. It's just a totally different year than they had even just two years ago. And so it's just, it is incumbent upon them to really figure out a strategy here to separate themselves from the national environment without also losing their identity for progressive voters. And um, it's going to be a real challenge, but as we all know, anything can happen in the state of Georgia. Anything can happen less than four months to go, and the pressure is already rising. Well, you can ask Patricia and me if you want, but really, Patricia, any <laughs> question you want, you can ask me too. Just don't make it about grammar or math. Um, you can submit your questions by calling, and we might be the only local podcast with this 24-hour <laughs> podcast line. It's always staffed. I mean, always. you know, we're spending a tremendous amount of resources to make sure it's staffed at all times because we're getting yes. droves of phone calls. Greg it's took at a pay 770. Cut. Yep, just for this. Yes, we, we did. <laughs> I, I hired my 11-year-old to just always sit by the phone. I'm just kidding. But no, the podcast line is 770-810-5297. That is our 24-hour Politically Georgia hotline. Hotline. 770-810-5297. And you never know, your question might be picked for our Friday mailbox, mailbag, mailbox, whatever you want to call it. So let us hear from you because we'll even play your questions and answer them during the mailbag segment we do every Friday. And thank you for listening to this edition of Politically Georgia. You can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, and every time big news breaks. We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. 
Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you.